Lord, you said in Isaiah 66 that you look to the man who was humble in spirit and contrite and the man who trembles at your word. And we want to be those men. That's why we are here. We are here to hear from you. We are here to be taught. We are here to be reminded for some of us of what we have been taught since we were boys. Uh, others uh, of us in here, our, our walk with you has begun just recently. And this is fresh and this is new, but we want to hear from you. So we ask that uh, you would teach and equip us. We ask that you would give us uh, the eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And that you might give us the ears as we hear your voice in Scripture, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. And that we would be men who are in our hearts, in our hearts, listening and walking and applying. We are living in evil days, and there is a tremendous pull, and there is a tremendous current in this culture to pull us away from you and from what you say. But make us steadfast and, and help us to stand firm in your truth and in your word because we want to walk as not as unwise but as wise men because the days are evil. So instruct us tonight, we pray. Give us teachable hearts and give us teachable spirits and that's something we ask you for often because if we don't have the teachability, this time is in vain. We want to grow tonight. And we ask for your spirit to work in each man's heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Sean, or somebody, we have these uh, kids who hang out in the hall, which is fine. We've kind of invaded their space, but we need someone to go over there and round them up and put them in a detention center. <laughs> and I say that in Christian love. But if someone could kind of just keep your eye open and ear open, because it may happen again. I, I mean, I'm not blaming them. You understand. But um, that'd be helpful. Yeah. Good. All right. All right, we had a slew of guys come in during the prayer. That's great. Good to see you guys. We are continuing uh, our study in Psalms, and tonight we are in Psalm 6. We are going to back up and take a running start in Psalm 6. It is a very applicable psalm to anyone who is serious about the Christian life. I want to give you a very simple outline on this psalm. Roman numeral one is this, two complementary biblical metaphors we're going to look at before we get to Psalm 6. And then the second one, Roman numeral two, would be two complementary biblical passages. We're not only going to look at Psalm 6, 
but we're going to go into the New Testament and look at Hebrews chapter 12. There are, there are two metaphors that are used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're used often. The first metaphor that is used is that of a father and his children. You've got a lot of scripture that talks about fathers, their sons, their daughters, uh, raising them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. That's, that's in Ephesians 6. Uh, you go to the Old Testament, you've got Deuteronomy 6. Moses says, this is the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has given me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you were going over to possess. They were getting ready to go into the promised land after 40 years. So that you might teach them diligently. And in the context, in Hebrews 6, he's talking to fathers and he's talking to grandfathers. Uh, and then through De Deuteronomy 6, he's got all this instruction on how to raise kids. So this metaphor of a father with his children is throughout Scripture. Now here's a question, and this applies to where we're going tonight. Why does an earthly father, you, me, discipline his children? Just real quick, let's turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs gives us some nuggets on, on being a father and the importance of being a father and the importance of a father's role in the family. So we'll look at three nuggets in Proverbs. Proverbs uh, 17, 25 says, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. All right, so a foolish son is a problem as they get older and grieves our hearts. Now, if you go to Proverbs 19, verse 18, it tells us this. Discipline your son while there is hope. You've got X amount of years with a son or with a, your daughter. So make the most of that time because after a certain time, they're out of the house, they're out in the world. Uh, if they're under your roof, you've still got hope. So discipline your son while there is hope. And then flip over to Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it from him. The rod of discipline, not the rod of abuse, not the rod of anger, not the, the rod of just being frustrated and taking it out on a kid. No, the rod of discipline. Discipline involves training. So back to the question. Why does an earthly father discipline his children? Because it is the responsibility of a father to teach his children certain truths that will give them wisdom and put them on the right path in life and keep them from foolishness. When children disobey, when children decide they want to go their own way, what happens is they go astray from their father's teaching. 
And that's not a good thing. They drift from their father's teaching. So when you've got kids under your roof, they go through the different phases and the method of discipline will change as the ages change. But we discipline them for their good. We want, we, there are benefits to discipline. But the thing is, when you're a kid, you're not really interested. You think you know, you think you've got it wired, and you don't want to go that way. You want to go your way. And so what we tend to do is we tend to go astray. That's true with earthly fathers. But the metaphor also applies to God. And we'd ask the same question. Why does God the Father discipline his children? For the very same reason. Because there is a way that he wants us to go. There is a path of wisdom. And this goes back to Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Ah, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's where wisdom comes from. So our job as dads, as grandfathers, is to teach these kids and to teach them God's truth and God's principles because it, it, it brings great benefit into their lives. But the, once again, the problem is not only are we fathers, but we are sons of God. Why does God discipline his children? Because we go astray. We drift. We get pulled away from his commandments and from his statutes and from his judgments, which are good and which are pure and which are clean and which are for our benefit. Um, so we're going to come back to this, this, this metaphor of our responsibility as fathers to teach our children and to discipline them. You discipline a child when they go astray, when they go their own way. In the Christian life, when we go astray, God disciplines us. Now, that's the first metaphor, that of a father and his children. The second metaphor is that of a shepherd and a sheep. Close to 200 times in the scripture, this metaphor of sheep in referring to God's people, it's used all the time. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, David says in Psalm 23. What does that make David? It makes him a sheep. So close to 200 times, God's people are called sheep. They're called lambs. This is interesting. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, all of God's people, all of us like sheep have oh, gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. We, we, uh, we have a will. We think we know what's best. The problem with kids is they got a will. And they think they know best. And each child is different. Some are compliant, a little easier to work with. Some are strong-willed. Uh, and, and so you got these challenges, depending on how many kids you got, grandkids. I mean, they're all different. But they all have a will. And we've got to be aware of that, and we've got to be sensitive, but 
down deep. They might be compliant, but they still have a will, and they still know what they want to do. In, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Okay. No, notice, notice the end of it. He makes me lie down. Why does the Lord have to make us lie down? Because we don't want to lie down. There are times in life we always want action. We want to get things done. We want to accomplish. But there are times in life, there's a season where we need to go down and rest and not be all that active, but we need to learn. Uh, he leads me besides still waters. Well, the fact of the matter is, a lot of time, we don't want anybody leading us. We want to go our own way. And it, we're pretty strong-willed about it. Then you get to verse 3. It says, he restores my soul. Now, that's really an interesting concept. He restores my soul. Whenever I teach on Psalm 23, I use this illustration. Every night, the shepherd, before he beds down the sheep, he counts all of the sheep, which makes sense. I mean, don't you count your kids at bedtime? Just to make sure everybody's home and they're all supposed to be home by curfew and all of that. You've been through that. I've been through it. We've all, we all know that drill. So every night he'll count his sheep. It's not unusual for a sheep to be missing. Everybody's there but one sheep. And usually if a sheep is missing, it's a young sheep. And it's not unusual for that young sheep to be a male who has his own agenda, who doesn't want to lie down, who wants to go explore, uh, and so he takes off. But the primary characteristic of a sheep, and this is actually true, the primary characteristic of a sheep is stupidity. Ask any shepherd. I, I know a guy who raises sheep in Northern California. And he said, absolutely. I mean, they're unbelievably stupid animals. I mean, you go to Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, as we took our kids for years, every year we'd go to the circus. It was so much fun. It was the greatest show on earth. And, and we went for years. And every year we went, one of the things we looked forward to were the animal acts. I mean, we saw trained seals, we saw trained tigers, we saw trained lions, we, tr we saw trained zebras, we trained horses. Never once did I see a trained sheep. And why is that? Sheep are stupid. And 200 times in the Bible, God calls me a sheep. And he calls you a sheep. Uh, there's an old hymn that says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And what happens is, if a sheep is gone, then the shepherd has to bed down the other sheep. And once they're secure and safe, then he takes off and he's got to find this lost, wandering, stupid little sheep. And he is stupid because he doesn't realize, he thinks he's got it together, he thinks he, he can handle life, but a predator can come and take him out in about 10 seconds. Uh, he can get up on a ridge, on a cliff, 
and get stuck and slip and fall to his death in the rocks below. All kinds of things can happen to sheep who have gone astray. So the good shepherd leaves the others, goes and pursues that little sheep who has wandered away. And you've seen the, the painting. Jesus takes the little sheep and he puts it around his shoulders and he takes it back to the flock. Well, let's say a night or two or three later, uh, he counts the sheep and there's one missing and it's the one that was gone the night before last. So again, same drill, he goes out, it might take him a few hours to find that sheep. This time when he finds the wandering sheep, the sheep that has gone astray, when he finds it, he'll take that little sheep, he will put it on its side, he will kneel down and put one knee on the sheep, holding it in place, then he will take one of the legs of the sheep, put it across his thigh, and with his long, heavy staff, with a real fast move, he'll take the staff and he'll crack it across the sheep of the little the leg of the little sheep and he'll fracture the leg and the little sheep is shocked and in pain he's never seen the shepherd act like that i mean i mean he's just stunned and shocked and once again he'll pick him up put him carefully around the shoulders and take him back and he'll fashion a splint for the next several days he'll actually carry that little sheep around and then as he improves he'll put him down and that little sheep it's all that little sheep can do to hobble and now, why would the good shepherd do something like that to a little sheep? If you're a sheep, you have to learn the central lesson of being a sheep. And if you're a sheep, the central lesson of being a sheep is you must stay close to the shepherd. Because that's the only place for their safety. That's the only place for their security. You must stay close to the shepherd. So he breaks the leg of the sheep. Not, not to... Not to ruin the sheep, but actually to save the life of the sheep. That's what God does in our lives. Guys that I know who have walked with the Lord, I respect their walk. They're having an impact. They're having a ministry in people's lives, uh, whatever their profession. If you get to know them, and if you get to hear their story, and you get to hear their background, somewhere in their past, the shepherd broke their leg. Because you see, you got to learn that central lesson. I can't be prone to wander. I can't keep going astray. I have got to stay close to the shepherd. All of us like sheep have gone astray. So those are the two big metaphors. A father and his children and a shepherd and the sheep. Now, let's look at the... Uh, Let's look at the second main heading that we've got. These two complementary biblical passages. And before I hit Psalm 6 and then go to Hebrews 12, I, I want to I drive home a key point. Because what we're talking about here tonight, we're going to talk about the discipline of God. The discipline of God in our lives. God disciplines his children. He does it purposely, he does it carefully, and he does it for our good. But when he does it, it's painful. When he does it, it sometimes makes no sense to us. When he does it, it interrupts our plans at times. It is a setback. You know, Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. When the Lord disciplines us, 
takes something away from your life that you want to be there, that has been there, and that you've enjoyed and brings you comfort. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I often quote from, the pastor who died in 1981, pastor of Westminster Chapel, he's written a tremendous book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. And in this book, he talks about the different ways that the enemy would attempt to depress Christians. Towards the end of a book, he has a chapter called Chastenings. Chastenings. Or, because when you're chastened, you're disciplined. And it's all about the discipline of God in the life of a believer. And the reason he teaches on it, he says, if we're not familiar with God as our Father, and yes, we've heard of the love of God, but because he loves us, he will discipline us, he will chasten us, and he will take something away from time to time in order to get our attention because we have wandered, because we have drifted, because we have gone astray, and we are on dangerous territory. And so as a good father, he wants our attention, he wants to pull us back, he wants to instruct us, and he wants us to obey. This is a very real part of the Christian life. And in that chapter on chastening, Lloyd-Jones says, so what are the ways, how is it that God chastens us? I mean, practically speaking. And he says, one of the most frequent ways God disciplines us as men is through financial hardship is through a dip in our finances, or a loss of a job, or uh, some kind of financial setback that really puts you on your heels. Sometimes it's a sickness. Sometimes it's persecution. Uh, someone at work is on you and is trying to undercut you, and, and he lists a number of other ways. But we need to be very, very clear here. If a Christian gets sick, it doesn't necessarily mean they're being disciplined. It can mean that, but not necessarily. Christians get sick. Sometimes they get sick because they're being disciplined, but not every Christian who is sick is being disciplined. Uh, God has, now, God oversees all the adversity that comes into our lives. Ecclesiastes 7 says that. Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. The bent things in our life are the things that we don't want to be there. Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, you've got an account where some of the people at Corinth, when they would celebrate the Lord's table, and they did it differently back then than we do it now because we'll have communion and the cup will be passed. You'll get a cup and then you'll get a little piece of bread or a wafer or something. But they would actually have a feast, sort of like a big potluck after the, the get-together. And they'd have a meal together. And because the water was so bad, they drank wine. And uh, some of these guys were at... The, a time when they should be examining their hearts and the purpose of the Lord's 
table, if you read the passage, is let each man examine himself. You check your heart for sin, unconfessed sin, if you need to repent of sin. And, and you remember by looking, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the bread, this is my body which was broken for you. The cup, this is my blood, which is the new covenant. Without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no sin. So we remember what Jesus did on the cross when we take the two elements. These guys weren't doing that. They were abusing it. They were getting drunk. They were being blasphemous. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually says, because of your behavior, some of you are sick and some of you have, have been put to sleep. In other words, some of you have died. The Lord's taken some out of your, out of your midst. So, can sickness be a discipline from God? Yes. Is it always a discipline from God? No. Sometimes he's going to take us through a deep valley and he's going to teach us some lessons through sickness that will deepen our faith, that will deepen our trust in him, uh, that will prepare us for the next chapter of life, which is coming at us, which we know nothing about. Doesn't necessarily mean you're being disciplined. It just means, though, Perhaps it could be that he's just going to increase your ability to trust in him. I'll never forget doing a conference in Sacramento years and years ago. And during the break, a gentleman came up to me, and I'd been teaching on some of this. And he said, Steve, I have to tell you that I've been out of work. I was laid off 18 months ago. And I start a new job this Monday. And I said, well, great, congratulations. And I said, wow, that's a long stretch. He goes, yeah. And he said, yeah, I have to tell you, when, when I got laid off, my wife and I, we looked at each other, and we looked at our budget, and we looked at what we had in the bank, and we said, okay, we can make it for 90 days. And, but what's going to happen at the end of 90 days? And he said, all I can tell you is, we got to the end of the 90 days, and we looked at our finances, and I did not have income. And as we looked at our finances, we looked at each other and said, well, we got enough for probably another 90 days. Because God had done some things that we just never saw coming, and it was just shocking. And it was stunning. Money came in from an insurance situation or this or that, and it was just, he took care of it. And then... That 90 days was over, and we sat down and looked at our finances because, and we said, gosh, we've got enough here for another 90 days because, and he said, I have to tell you something. I was dreading these 18 months. I, I didn't know it was going to last that long, and I kept praying for the Lord to, to fix it and to bring it to a conclusion and send me a job. He said, my wife and I wouldn't trade this for anything. Uh, our kids have learned a ton because they knew what was going on. They're in college or high school. They, you know, they were in that, in that continuum. And our kids have been amazed. He, he said, I have to tell you something. It's been the greatest time in my Christian life to see the faithfulness of God, to actually hold up the promises in his word to him, which 
in regard to finances, I've never had to do. But I was desperate, and to see him come through and be faithful to his promises. He said, it's been, it, I, I want to say it's been the greatest experience of our married life. Now, the next time that couple hits a tough stretch where they're going to have to trust God, how do you think they're going to do? They're going to do a lot better than when they started out 18 months prior because in that situation, they weren't being disciplined, but what was happening is their trust in God was being deepened and strengthened because God is sovereign over all things in our lives. Nothing is wasted in the Christian life. We all enjoy his blessing and his favor, and we're thankful for it, but he not only uses the favor and the good times, he uses the hard times and the difficult times and the things that we don't want. He uses those to accomplish things that drive us deeper in terms of trusting him. But in some situations, if we have drifted, if we have gone astray away from him, he can use those things at times to discipline us in order to get our attention. Um, in Revelation, book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, John is used by the Holy Spirit to address seven different churches. And to, and to each church, he'll talk about, I mean, they were in geographical different locations. And to each church, the Lord Jesus gives a word and he will acknowledge what they've done that's been favorable. But in several situations, he will switch gears and then he will say this, but I have this against you. I have this against you. Because what had happened? They had drifted. They had gone astray. They had wandered away from the Lord, and they had got pulled away from the Lord, and they were not obeying the Lord. They were not paying attention in terms of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? They were. Who doesn't stand in the path of sinners? They were. Who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers? They were because they had drifted away from the Lord. In that context, in Revelation 3.19, after addressing those churches, we read these words. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Isn't that something? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Uh, this stuff is not hard to understand. But a lot of times, if we haven't heard biblical teaching on the discipline of God in the life of a believer, we get confused when it happens, and we get angry at God. We, we've talked before about the, the false teaching of prosperity theology, that God always wants us prosperous, that God always wants us well, that God always wants us healthy, that goes flat against 
what you find in Scripture in terms of the discipline of the Lord. Those churches in Revelation 7 that he said, I have this against you, they'd suffered some kind of loss. There was some kind of setback. And what did he want them to do? The last thing he was going to do was prosper them. Sometimes in American culture, where we are right now, we, we give our kids way too much. And, and what happens is, we, we've got, no one wants to be around a spoiled brat. But when there is not discipline in a child's life, when they're entitled, when they think they deserve everything, it, uh, there, is a, there is a type of stench that is in their life, and nobody wants to be around like somebody like that because they're absolutely self-centered. It's all about them. God does not want his kids to be like that. He wants us to learn. If, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. It's not about us. It's about maturity and growing and developing. If when you're a young husband, when you're a young father, when you're young, you're young. Boy, that was profound. <laughs> and when you're young, you know what you want, but you don't know what you need. That's the problem with being young. And it takes years to learn certain lessons. And it takes years to get a perspective of the value of being disciplined. If you were raised in a home where you were disciplined, you're very blessed. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is all the background to Psalm 6. Because in Psalm 6, what is happening, David is being disciplined by the Lord. So we go to Psalm 6, and right out of the blocks, we read this. David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. The word chasten um, means discipline. And, and right out of the blocks, he admits this. Uh, there are, there's a group of psalms that are called uh, penitential psalms or repenting psalms. Um, one of them would be Psalm 32, where David repents with the sin with Bathsheba. And we know that God disciplined him because of that sin. So you've got Psalm 32, and then you've also got Psalm 51, where he's repenting. Uh, several other Psalms, Psalm 130, where he says, Out of the depths, O Lord, I've cried to you. Why is he in the depths? Uh, he's being disciplined. Uh, this is what occurs when we drift. This is what happens when we lose our focus. We are told, the book of Hebrews tells us to fix your eyes on Jesus. And we get our eyes on other things, and other things become more important, and other things become idols, and we drift, we're going to be disciplined. This is what happened to David. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, now, let's say this. This does not mean that David was going to lose his salvation. No, he's in the family. 
he has been saved as he looked forward and trusted in the Messiah. When the Lord comes into our lives, he saves us. And he regenerates us. And he gives us eternal life. Uh, we're justified. And the wrath, when Jesus went to the cross, the wrath of God and the anger of God, which was right and good and holy towards my sin and the sin that you have and all of our sin, Jesus took that upon him and Jesus paid the price. Jesus took the wrath. Jesus took the pain that we should have paid for. But Jesus paid it all. Okay? So now, when we call upon the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, accept me, bring me into your kingdom, I believe you're the Son of God, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin, when you're born again, you're justified. And that anger was put upon Christ. But now that you're born again, now you're walking through life. He's our Father. And when we depart, when we go astray, just like this is the same thing with your kids. When they disobey and they clearly know what we want and they go the other way, there's going to be discipline. And there's a little bit of anger, which is righteous anger. If you're a dad, you understand this. Here's, here's a phrase that dads often use. Your dad used it, and you use it. You pass it down through the generations. How many times... Why are you laughing? I haven't even completed it, and you know what it is. How many times do I have to tell you? Well, it's going to be quite a while. A number of times. A number of times. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my, my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. Uh, when he says bones and his soul, he's talking about his whole being. He's under the discipline of God. And there are levels of discipline. I, I will say this to you. The discipline of God is... Well, my dad took his cues on disciplining me and my brothers from how God disciplines believers. If, if I'm disciplined and I return and I, do what my, and I did what my dad said, then things immediately improved for me. But if I, I just said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, but I wasn't, and then I went ahead and did it again, and I did it again. Each time I did it, the discipline became increasingly more difficult. That's what God does with us. Same thing. And it can get intense. I, I, I want to say this. I learned pretty early on it was not real smart to mess around with my dad. My dad loved me and my two brothers. I mean, he loved us. He'd die for us. He'd do anything for us. But uh, he didn't miss around. If he said be in at 11, he didn't mean, he didn't mean 1101. Um, and he, he, was a, he was a great dad. But I, me and my two brothers, 
we, were, we had a little bit of fear. Not, not terror. Not, he never harmed us. He never put welts on us. He would, he would say, Steve, come here. And then I, Dad, I'm, Dad, I'm really sorry. He goes, I know you're sorry. And he's very calm. He's not angry. He's not out of control. He's just real calm. He's not going to get spanked. I am. <laughs> but he was real cool. He would pull that belt off. He says, Steve, come here. And then he would say, how many times? How many times? I know, Dad. I know. He said, did I not make it clear? No, it was clear. But you just keep doing it, Steve. I, I know. I just, and you know, I'm 19 years old. This is embarrassing. <laughs> no, I wasn't 19. But, uh, and he'd talk about it. He'd go back over it and explain it. So we, we get, you get it? You understand this? All right, turn around, and he gave me a couple of whacks in the rear. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. We were over, my son John, we went over for dinner the other night at his place. He's got a little boy is five, a little boy is three. And uh, there's a little boy. And they're good little boys. And, you know, they're horsing around and doing something. I don't know. And all of a sudden, the little guy, Lucas, who's three, did something really, really wrong, and John was over there, and he said, Lucas, how many times, and I, I couldn't laugh out loud, but I wanted to, it brought back a lot of memories, and here's Lucas, and, and he knew what he was doing when he took that Star Wars sword and just popped his brother right in the chops. He knew what he was doing, and John said, Lucas, how many times do I... And he, he looks down, and, and John said, I told you not to hit that in the, and, you know, he's going through the whole thing. And then John says, come here. And he goes, Daddy, Daddy. And John just got, got him, and just a couple of whacks in the rear end. Oh, oh, oh. He's three years old. And then you know what was interesting? He hugged his dad. He hugged his dad. Because he knows. His dad loves him. And he knows his dad is for him. And he knows at three years old, the biblical concept of a father disciplining his son. He gets it. He may not be able to articulate it like a seminary grad would, but he gets it. Uh, that affected his whole body. He's crying. And, you know, he's got that little heave from his thumb. You know, he's got that, and it hurt his rear end. And, of course, you know, two minutes later, he's fine running around and eating cake or something. Uh, when God disciplines it, we feel it. We feel it emotionally. We feel it spiritually. We feel it, uh, we feel it deeply. Then in verse 4, he says, but, but see, David knows he's loved. He knows he's loved. He knows that God is his father. He knows that he's not thrown out of the family. He says, verse 4, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. 
Save me because of your loving kindness. Save me because of your steadfast love. Uh, yes, you disciplined me, but you love me, and that's why you disciplined me. For there is no mention of you in death in Sheol who will give you thanks. What, what he's seeing, saying is, Lord, you're, you're, you're not going to eternally damn me for this. You're not going to put me in the grave. I know you and your character. You're going to rescue me. You've done that before. You want me to return to you, but you're going to rescue me because if I'm in the grave, I can't publicly worship you and give you praise. He knows God is a God of grace and mercy. And then in 6, he goes back to the heaviness of being um, astray from the Lord and being disobedient to the Lord. I am weary with my sign. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. Uh, this is a guy who's broken over his sin. This is a guy who knew it was right. He kept pushing, he kept pushing, he kept straying, he kept rebelling, he kept... Re and finally, the Lord had to bring the hammer down. And there is a grief there is a grief over his sin. There is a grief what he has caused. And by the way, and you guys know this, when we sin, we never sin alone. Our sin always affects other people, doesn't it? Always. If, if you sin, if you do something, let's say you take a shortcut in your business, something that you know is wrong, something that you know is not pleasing to the Lord, something that is not completely honest, and you do that, and you get caught, and there are child, uh, charges filed against you, and suddenly your picture and your story is in the newspaper, and people know, and kids are saying things to your kids at school, and your wife is embarrassed, and then if you have to go off, and serve some time. See, you're affecting your whole family. When, when a guy gets involved with another woman, oh, it's no big deal, we're just having lunch. Oh, we're just hanging out. Yeah, that's all right. Well, you know, my wife really doesn't understand me. We've kind of grown distant and all And all this rationalization goes on, and then as time goes by, uh, suddenly you're in immorality with her and then it comes out, or you decide to leave, and to leave your wife, and to leave your kids, and see, you're just, you're just doing your own thing. Don't I have a right to be happy, as a guy told me in my first pastorate, a guy who was, I mean, how old was I? I was my second pastorate. I, I was early 30s, and here's this guy who comes into my office, and uh, his daughter who had just been married to a new guy who a new christian guy they came in and said would you talk she said would you talk to my dad and he's he's gone crazy and he had this ministry and this youth ministry and this camp and been married he's been married to my mom for you know 40 years but he's involved with this 19 year old girl at camp who's a cook and he's openly living with her and all of this and Oh, yeah, I'll talk with him, but I don't think he's going to want to talk to me. 
And this guy was real cocky, and the guy was real confident, and he knew the scriptures. And he probably thought, oh, yeah, that young, that young punk pastor down there, I'll go down and talk to him. I'll snow that guy. The big guy. He, he was probably 6'4". I, I would say 260, 270. He was a pretty opposing guy. And he, he came into the office real cocky, and he said, so you, you want to talk with me? And I said, well, your daughter asked if I would, and I appreciate your coming in. And we start talking. And I start asking him questions. And he starts, you know, he kind of chuckles, and he goes, well, you, you just, you don't get it. One day you'll understand. And I said, yeah, but, you know, immorality, uh, you don't have to get older to understand immorality. What you're doing is just flat out wrong, isn't it? And he said, well, you know, you're pushing kind of hard. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. But you're in sin, and you're excusing it, and you're, you're, and, and you're acting like a fool, quite frankly. Has anybody ever told you that? He said, who are you to talk? I said, well, I'm a guy who is a, a brother in Christ. That's who I am. And I care about you. You're ruining your life. And we just kind of kept going back and forth. And finally, I'll never forget this. He got really frustrated and angry. And he took his big paw and he just slammed it down on my desk. And he looked at me and he said, don't I have a right to be happy? That was his whole justification. And I said, actually, you don't. Where'd you ever get that idea? And he quoted to me probably 15 different scriptures. A right to be happy? I said, what about your wife? You've been married 40 years? You're embarrassing her. You're shaming her. What about your kids who are adult kids? You've raised them to live differently than this and they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. What are you doing with your life? And his whole response was, don't I have a right to be happy? I said, no. And you know you don't have a right to be happy. You're called to please the Lord. And you're not doing it. And I wouldn't want to be in your shoes because you're laughing this off and you're joking about it. But you know the scripture as well as I do that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Uh, he'd had enough. He goes stomping out. I never saw him again, that I recall. But I got a call a few months later that uh, he was mowing his front yard and he dropped dead of a heart attack. I've never forgotten that. I don't know all that God was doing in his life. I'm sure there were others that were trying to talk with him, but... Uh, my gosh, there was no repentance, just rationalization, just excuses. When, when, when the Lord gets our attention, there is a, and, and we come clean as David did after a, a year after his sin with Bathsheba. We repent, and what happens is there is a, there's a genuine sorrow. That's why David is is in his bed. He's, and he's making his bed swim because of his tears, because of his grief over his sin. But then he goes on, and he says this, verse 8, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. I've done that. I'm done with it. Then he says in 8, at the end of 8, For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. Get this. Let, let me read those verses again. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. 
The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. Why? Because I belong to him. The Lord's not ignoring me. He is listening to me. Uh, I, I, the, the, the Lord loves me. This is where, Lord, you want me to be. And he says, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. And they will again, they will suddenly be ashamed. Those who are away from the Lord, as we've seen in this study, there are the righteous, those who embrace the Lord and the forgiveness that's in Christ. And there's the unrighteous, those who mock it. Um, there's a final judgment. There is a final judgment. And we don't know how long we have. We don't know how many breaths we have. But you take that last breath, and if you're not in Christ, there is a sudden judgment. But you see, David has turned to the Lord. And he's actually grateful for the discipline of the Lord. Now, let's go in the time we have remaining, which isn't a lot of time, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Because this gives us a little different angle on what happens when the Lord disciplines. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin as Jesus did in the previous verses. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Did you get that? As sons. And here's the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Um, my brother Jeff, some of you have met Jeff, longtime pastor, but from his days playing football, after he should have quit, he just had his 24th major surgery. And he's lived in chronic pain for a number of years. Um, uh, Je Jeff was crazy. He was the youngest. I'm the oldest, then my brother Mike, then Jeff. He was always trying to keep up with uh, Mike and myself. And, and he was just fearless, and he was a linebacker, and he just, he was crazy. I mean, he would, he would try to hit a guy, so not only did he knock the guy out, he knocked himself out. I mean, you're talking tilt here. <laughs> but that was Jeff. And just how he was. And so he's had all these surgeries. But what's interesting about Jeff, when he was little, and my dad would discipline him and give him a couple of whacks of the rind, and he really is tough, but my dad would give him a couple of swats of the rind, and he'd, he'd pass out. He just, that was it. He was gone. And the first time it happened, it freaked my, I mean, it absolutely freaked my parents. I mean, you can imagine. What did we do, kill this kid? <laughs> so my mom went in, and then it happened again, and it happened, and she went in and told the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, yeah, this happens with some kids. All you do is just blow in his face. And she said, what? Just blow in his face. He was being reproved, and what happened? He fainted. My daughter, Rachel, this is something that runs in our family for some reason. When my daughter Rachel was just little, she was very sensitive. And I remember one time she kept doing something and she kept doing something and I was working on something and she did it one more time and I went, Rachel! And she just passed out. <laughs> went, oh my gosh, what did I do? So what did I do? I went over and, <laughs> and she was fine. 
when you're disciplined by the Lord, you don't need to think. What you need to do is you need to listen and you need to respond. Don't go weak. Do the right thing. Uh, don't faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. I was reading Warren Wearsby's commentary on Hebrews. Wearsby was a longtime pastor, 50, 60 years. And in talking about this, he said, over the years, I pastor different churches. I've seen back to several people I have seen who were professing Christians. But when I got to know them, I found out that really all they did was profess Christ with their mouth. They, they were one way on Sunday and they lived another way. They had a horrible reputation in the community of integrity. They were not trustworthy. They were not, some of them were, uh, were cheats. Some of them were sexually involved with other women. They covered it up and, and they seemed to get away with it. They just seemed to always get away with it. And I couldn't figure that out. And then it hit me one day as I was working on this passage, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And what I figured out was they didn't know the Lord to begin with. That's why the discipline had not been meted out to them yet. They honestly didn't know the Lord in their hearts of hearts. Now, Someone who knew the Lord and was doing what they were doing, there'd be discipline. And if the guy didn't respond, there'd be more difficult discipline And until the guy broke. There are fake Christians. There are professing Christians that don't really know the Lord, but they talk it. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, in our culture, there's quite a few. We got a lot of spoiled kids because their parents haven't disciplined them. They haven't taken them in hand and instructed them. Verse 8, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, you're illegitimate children and not sons. If God, if you, if, if the Lord has never disciplined you, you don't belong to the Lord because every son that belongs to the Lord will be disciplined. You can count on it. Furthermore, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? When a child is not disciplined, they don't respect their parents. They just don't. Why would they? There's nothing to respect. I mentioned that along with my brothers, again, my dad was, a, I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he was pretty darn good. He, uh, he made mistakes. We all make mistakes. But he loved us. But we had a little bit of fear. Uh, actually, a little bit more than fear. Because we knew my dad meant what he said. My son John, when he was in high school, was telling me about a friend. And this kid was just, I mean, this kid was going off the cliff, was involved in everything, 
and anything and was, I mean, this kid was going to wind up in jail. And John was telling me about it, and then John looked at me and he said, you know what the real problem with him is, Dad? And I said, no. His problem is he doesn't fear his father. I said, really? He goes, not at all. He's got them completely, I mean, he's got the wool pull over them. He's got them wrapped around his little finger. There's no fear whatsoever. For they disciplined us. No, verse 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Between my freshman and sophomore year of high school, we moved, and I switched high schools. And uh, I would have gone out for basketball, but my dad had a rule. And my dad's rule was, you don't have to be Phi Beta Kappa, you don't have to have a 4.0, but don't get anything lower than a C. Because it's pretty hard to get anything lower than a C. But I wasn't the greatest student, and I was horsing around, and I was having fun. and So uh, I got a D on my last report card, and we moved to this new school, and, instead of, and I couldn't go out for basketball. So I'm in a PE class, and we're just shooting baskets, you know, and the, and the football coach was running the, uh, the class. And he came up to me after the class, and he said, how come you're not out for varsity basketball? And I said, well, um, my dad has a rule. And I, I got a D, and he won't let me play. And he said, well, you qualify. The school will let you play. I said, yeah, but my dad, that's my dad. I'll get, it, I'll get my grades up, and then I can come out later. Well, he talked to the varsity basketball coach. And a few days later, this basketball coach, this varsity coach comes up to me, and he, you know, he's a former Marine big guy. And I, so, uh, Farrar, how come you're not out for basketball? And I said, well, my dad. He goes, yeah, I heard about that. He won't let you because you got a D. And I said, yeah. He said, uh, I'm going to call your dad. <laughs> I said, yeah, you do that. Give him a call. A few days later, he comes up to me and he said, uh, hey, Farrar, I, uh, I called your dad. And uh, he, he wouldn't bend. And I said, yeah, that's my dad. And he said, well, he said, I'll tell you this, I don't have much respect for your father. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I got all kinds of respect for him. And I'll tell you one other thing. I will never play basketball for you, ever. And I was a sophomore, and I never did. That was it for me. And I wasn't that good anyway. I wasn't playing for that jerk. See, here's the thing about my dad. My dad loved basketball. My dad was all skate and basketball. My dad's team won the state championship. They went 36-0. and 0. And then my dad got a scholarship to a Division I school. Back then, they didn't have Division I. But it was a good basketball school. My dad loved basketball. But my dad loved me more than basketball. And see, my dad knew he had to get my attention and he had to discipline me 
because he had to turn me into a man and teach me to do some things that I didn't want to do. If I was ever going to make anything out of my life, he could not allow me to keep that up. And I had to feel the weight of the discipline. And I knew that. I knew my dad was right and I respected him. You know what was interesting the other day about little Lucas who was three years old? He understands Hebrews 12. He can't read Hebrews 12, but he understands it. He knew he was wrong. He knew his dad appropriately disciplined him because his daddy loved him. And as soon as his daddy finished spanking his little bottom, he reaches out and grabs his leg and hugs him because he loves him. And then John picked him up and and then it was over and done with. That's Hebrews 12. That's how God operates with us. It says in verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Who did? Our dad. What do you get, 18 years with them? That's why Proverbs says, discipline your son while there is hope. Um, you get 18 years. Uh, you look back on your whole life now, and that was a very short time with my dad. And the discipline changes as you go through the different, you know, stages of life. There's a time when spanking doesn't work, but grounding will work, or this will work, or taking away a car, or uh, there's all kinds of stuff you can do to be creative. But they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time. But, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. In other words, for the rest of my life, God's my father, and he's going to discipline me for the rest of my life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in that book, said, he said, in my own life, it seems that every couple of years, the Lord has to discipline. And I try to pay attention when he does. The discipline of the Lord is a wonderful thing. It goes on and says, we just read it, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That is one of the great understatements of all time. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Remember what David said back in Psalm 6? How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long am I going to be in this discipline? How long? Because we just want it over with. But see, he, God has never made a mistake in his discipline. It's always appropriate. It's always proportional. Not too much, not too little. He knows exactly and precisely what he is doing. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained. Trained. What's the purpose of God's discipline? For a father, what's the purpose of disciplining? It's training. Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. The purpose of, di of discipline, biblically, is not anger or to get your frustration out or do all this or throw bottles of beer or whatever the, your chump you're doing. It's to train. It's to train. It's to instruct. How many times do I have to tell you? Was it not clear? Let's go over this one more time. Da, da, da. All right, here are the consequences because this is the third time this happened this month. And when it happens, and the consequences are more difficult, it's not joyful. 
But to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's not against me. He is, he is for me. I'll close with this passage of Scripture in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. But in, in Psalm 119, when you get to verse 65, it says this. And I need to say one more thing before I read this. We started off earlier by saying, if you have a financial reversal, it might be God's discipline, but then again, it may not. If uh, you have sickness, it could be from the Lord, but then again, as a discipline, but perhaps it's not a discipline from the Lord. So the question is, well, how do I know if I'm being disciplined? Believe me, you'll know. The Holy Spirit makes it incredibly clear what the issue is. Because what kind of spirit is he? He's holy. And when we sin and we have that flick on the nerve of conscience, we know exactly what the issue is. God doesn't make us guess. We know if it's, if it's sin, he wants us to repent. He wants us to turn from it and seek him. So he'll never leave you in the dark whether or not you're being disciplined. Verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Now watch this. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Astray from what? Astray from the commandments of God that he clearly knew. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. It is the goodness of God when he disciplines us. And the smartest thing we can do is to stop the sin, stop the disobedience, repent, turn to him, and come clean. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for the way you work in our lives. Thank you for the way you'll interrupt our lives and you will keep us from going down a wrong path in order to save us. In order, Lord, to turn us into the men you want us to become. Give us teachable hearts. Don't let us touch sin with a 10-foot pole. Let it scare us. Let, us. let it frighten us. It's a horrible thing. Help us to keep your commandments. And when we don't, to take care of it immediately under your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.